Welcome to It's Your Dime, a straight talk interview series presented by Shift Gold. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, I'm talking to economist Mark Thornton, who predicted the 2008 housing crisis several years before it started. Mark holds his PhD in economics from Auburn University and is the author of several books, including the recently released Skyscraper Curse. In this episode of It's Your Dime, Mark and I discuss his book, how skyscrapers can help us predict economic crashes, the Austrian business cycle, why printing money out of thin air causes problems, and what skyscrapers are telling us about the condition of the economy today. Well, I'm here today with Mark Thornton, and really appreciate you coming on the show with me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, we're going to start the interview with what I like to call, who are you and why are you on my show? Which is basically just your opportunity to kind of give everybody a little bit of your background, uh, what you're doing now, and uh, just kind of your your credentials and whatnot. Okay, fine. I was uh, born in Geneva, New York, which is in the Finger Lakes region of New York. And I went to St. Bonaventure University uh, in college where I was an economics major. And then I went to Auburn University in Alabama uh, to pursue uh, graduate studies in economics. Uh, I did earn my PhD uh, and I wrote my dissertation on the economics of prohibition, which was published as a book. And I worked in that area for 10 or 15 years. Uh, I still do write on that topic, but um, about 20 years ago, I turned my interest back to the business cycle, back to macroeconomics, and began working um, in the macro rather than in the micro area. And uh, that culminated recently in the publication of my book on the skyscraper curse. Um, I've worked in one form or another uh, with the Mises Institute, which uh, just happily showed up uh, during my first year of graduate studies here at Auburn. Um, and it's been an enormous, uh, very lucky uh, life to have uh, come in contact with the Mises Institute at its very beginning and to see it grow uh, and mature and have influence really around the world uh, from a very, very small uh, starting point. Uh, and so that's where we're at. Outstanding. Well, it's always interesting to me to talk to people who have have veered into the Austrian school because normally people don't fall out of the womb as free market economists, much less uh, uh, Austrians. How did you end up interested in that area and what kind of brought you into that school of thinking? Well, a couple things happened to me in college. Uh, one, I became an economics major, so I was very interested in that topic about how the world works, uh, what makes it work and what makes it not work. Because as a teenager, I grew up during the 1970s when we had all sorts of bad economic things like going off the gold standard, price and wage controls, uh, gas shortages, uh, high inflation, high unemployment. Um, and so that was uh, certainly a factor. And uh, also, I recognized uh, for the first time that my political beliefs were called libertarian. So I wasn't switching back and forth from Republican to Democrat, but this new word really helped me um, to identify myself politically and ideologically. And um, it was in pursuing both of those things 
that I went to an Institute for Humane Studies conference in the summer of my junior year. And I came into contact. One of the instructors was Roger Garrison. Uh, he did the economics lectures and he did things like prices and price controls, but he also did a lecture on the Austrian business cycle theory. And that really uh, captured my imagination uh, because of what I was seeing in the US economy, uh, what I was hearing about from the Federal Reserve. And uh, it all started to make sense. And at that point, I decided I would go to graduate school. Um, ultimately, I did chose Auburn University where Roger Garrison was teaching. And I planned to uh, pursue studies in the Austrian business cycle theory tradition. Um, and so I was coming into contact with the Austrian school, uh, finding out who the, the fundamental um, founders and creators uh, of the Austrian school. It was a time when there was no internet and it was very difficult to find any books uh, for sale or any books even in the university library about Austrian economics. So it was a real struggle uh, at first, uh, and there were a lot of other things I could have been doing, uh, but ultimately I decided to uh, cast my hat uh, in that direction. I think a lot of people uh, don't recognize the value of what we have today in terms of what is what is online, you know, especially a resource like the Mises Institute, because you know I came into this relatively late in life, and uh, so. You know, I was able to go download all of these books and read all of these articles by, you know, people like Rothbard and, and Mises and Hayek and, and uh, well, even you. And so it's really, it's amazing the resources that we have that weren't available even 30 or 40 years ago. It really is. Um, it makes everything so much easier. It creates a more uh, level playing field. Uh, People can go anywhere around the world to our website, Mises.org, and download probably a million articles. Hundreds of books are available in PDF form and other forms. Uh, my book is available for free as a PDF file uh, on our website. And so it's, it's so easy to go online, get the book, read the book, uh, cut and paste out of the book. Uh, and it's just a real engine of intellectual progress, uh, both for the Austrian School of Economics and uh, libertarian political philosophy and all the old original uh, journals and publications. We brought all of that back from the past uh, before I even got involved or knew of any of this stuff. And uh, we've brought it forward. We've made it accessible and people are using it. Yeah, it really is amazing. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting about you is uh, that you actually were predicting the housing crash uh, uh, even a couple of years before it actually happened when when nobody was paying a bit of attention to that. And I'm relatively certain you're not a sorcerer and you don't have a crystal ball. How did you manage to do that? Well, I had several advantages. Uh, remember from my previous statement, I said that I turned back to the Austrian business cycle theory. And one of the things that created that transition was reading about the skyscraper index. 
And so I was working on an academic journals um, article on the skyscraper index uh, right after the tech bubble bust. Um, and so I was working on that subject and, uh, and the Austrian business cycle theory, uh, digging down into the nuts and bolts of it. And a couple of anecdotes involving a friend of mine and involving a brother of mine uh, made a light bulb go off in my head that said, hey, we're living through uh, a housing bubble. We're living through one of these booms that I'm reading about and writing about. And this was probably in 2003. Um, and so I began writing about the housing bubble in two th early 2004. And I was writing about the housing bubble in, uh, you know, in an academic sense, but also in a popular sense. I was giving talks um, to groups like the Economics Club at Auburn University, the Lee County Builders Association. Um, I did some podcasts with LouRockwell.com, and uh, most of the people thought I was nuts. And, you know, this is a time when everybody was saying you can't lose money in re real estate, uh, that housing prices never go down. And uh, this is true whether you looked at um, real estate associations and their economists, whether you looked at the Federal Reserve and what their economists were saying. Uh, certainly Ben Bernanke was poo-pooing uh, the idea, Alan Greenspan before him, uh, that there was no likelihood of a housing bubble, uh, that that really wouldn't happen, that it was just regional in nature, and that if it if there were a housing bubble, that the Fed could easily fix that. And so it was a lonely uh, pursuit. Um, we didn't really have uh, big names uh, like Peter Schiff, uh, who was going to talk about it later. Ron Paul had talked about it much earlier, but wasn't really talking about it at this time. So it looked like I was out there on my own. Um, and that was four years before anyone recognized that there was a financial crisis. And when the Fed really started to do some of its uh, abnormal uh, policies, which would later morph into untried uh, and very speculative policies, uh, but the housing bubble uh, in early 2004 still had two more years plus uh, to go. But in early 2004, the conditions were already uh, there uh, for an economic crisis to take place at some time in the near or distant future. Um, and, uh, and so, in fact, I wrote an article for a book um, in 2006 where I laid out everything with respect to uh, the housing bubble uh, and what would happen once it started to unravel. Um, the publisher would not accept uh, the book and it would be uh, until 2009 when it was published. And the editors of the book actually pointed out in the introduction that my article was written before any of this stuff happened. 
and it laid out um, the conditions of what the cause was, as well as what the implications were, and what were some of uh, the ramifications once the bubble burst. Yeah, you mentioned that in the uh, beginning of your book, The Skyscraper Curse. And I want to get into that book here in just a second. But just to to back up for a second for uh, viewers who may not be as familiar, can you kind of give a real quick, uh, you know, maybe elevator version of what in the world is this business cycle? We talk about it a lot, but I think a lot of people may not really even know what that necessarily means. Well, the business cycle basically is the the ups and downs in the economy. The fact that Economies expand uh, at a very fast pace, and then they contract uh, sometimes severely uh, in the downturn. But basically, uh, in the up cycle of the business cycle, and you can call it a boom, you can call some of them bubbles, uh, basically you have very high rates of economic growth. You have uh, very low levels of unemployment. And there tends to be a lot of investment going on in the economy. Sometimes it's in one or two sectors. Sometimes it's a general um, increase uh, in investment. And so everybody's doing well. Everybody's happy. Everybody's making profits. Uh, wages are going up. Uh, you know, so everything is great uh, during the expansion. And uh, but ultimately, this has to come to an end if it's generated by artificial artificially low interest rates at the federal reserve that's the ultimate cause uh, and uh, once the the boom runs its course you end up in a contraction some people call it some people call it a bust uh, or it can be severe and be called an economic depression uh, but austrian the austrian business cycle theory uh, states that you get a business cycle because of artificially low interest rates by the Federal Reserve or the central bank. Uh, this leads to a big expansion in bank credit. So uh, banks are making much more uh, loans uh, into the economy as a result. Uh, not surprisingly, the uh, banks have to lower their credit standards in order to give out this increase uh, in the amount of loans. And when they lower their credit uh, standards, uh, obviously you're creating uh, conditions where a lot of these investments are going to turn out to be bad investments uh, once the uh, money and the economy runs its course, and then you end up in the economic crisis. So what in the world do skyscrapers have to do with this? You mentioned the skyscraper index. This is fascinating to me, and I really encourage people to to get this book because it, it is really fascinating. Uh, but to the to the mind, you know, you're kind of wondering how in the world can building buildings have anything to do with the business? Can you explain what what all this uh, skyscraper index is all about? In 1999, I read an article about the skyscraper index, which was compiled by real estate analyst, Andrew Lawrence. And he showed that there was a very unlikely correlation or association between the building of the world's tallest skyscraper and an economic crisis. And he did it historically. He went back uh, to the panic of 1907, the Great Depression, 
the stagflation of the 1970s and other major crises, uh, including the tech bubble. And uh, he showed that every time there was a new record height in skyscrapers, that an economic crisis soon followed. And the business media at the time, uh, and most everything, most every outlet at the time covered uh, the release of this skyscraper index. It was kind of the story of the day. And most people dismissed it as just another one of those correlations that um, get talked about uh, with respect to the stock market and the economy, like the Super Bowl index and, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, but what I saw was the Austrian business cycle theory connecting those record skyscrapers with an economic crisis. And that's when I went about, you know, starting my research on exactly what could I show? Because it's obviously not the building of the world's tallest skyscraper um, that's causing the economic crisis, but rather both the skyscraper records and the economic crisis are caused by artificially low, easy monetary policy uh, by the set, uh, by the uh, Federal Reserve, and uh, and so that's basically what I was doing a lot of my academic research on. And um, in 2005, I was able to show in an academic uh, journal article that Austrian business cycle theory links those skyscrapers with the boom bust cycle that ends with a crisis and that's where that's what the skyscraper curse comes from is the subsequent crisis um during that business cycle so i think back to some of the uh photos and stuff that you see that were uh, popularized in the 1920s of the, you know, the workers sitting on top of the the girders and, and all of the building that was going on, particularly in places like New York City. What was the the skyscraper that kind of is the signal before the Great Depression? Well, you know, of course, the Roaring Twenties was a, an a huge expansion in the U.S. economy after World War One. And uh, this, the Federal Reserve was founded in 1913, right before World War One, and they greatly expanded uh, the money supply to help pay for World War One. And then the 1920s was really the time when the Federal Reserve sat down and tried to come up with a monetary policy, and they adopted the monetary policy guidelines of American economist Irving Fisher, who wanted to stabilize the value of the U.S. dollar in order to stabilize uh, the U.S. economy. Um, unfortunately, Fisher's proposal had a lot of errors in it, uh, and these errors were uh, pointed out by Ludwig von Mises, the namesake of the Mises Institute. Uh, he published an entire book on the subject in 1928, and he showed that trying to use a price index to stabilize the economy is inherently unstabilizing. Uh, and he, so he knew years before uh, the Great Depression that the monetary policy that 
this, the Federal Reserve and other central banks are following were going to inherently destabilize uh, the economy. And Mises turned out to be right. And so in the late 1920s, uh, you had uh, three skyscraper construction sites that would set new records. One was 40 Wall Street, which I believe is now called the Trump Tower. And, um, and then following that, uh, the Chrysler Building uh, would set an even higher record. And then finally, um, during 1929, they broke ground on the Empire State Building, which would set the record that would stand for decades. Uh, it opened in 1931 in the bottom of the Great Depression. With, we had 25% uh, unemployment rates. Um, much higher in uh, manufacturing areas. Uh, and so, yeah, the skyscrapers, you know, you can imagine what New Yorkers were thinking uh, because it wasn't just these three record setting buildings that were under construction, but all sorts of things were being constructed uh, on Manhattan and elsewhere uh, in the economy. And there was really technological and product revolutions going on a lot of advanced technology coming online. Um, and, uh, and so it was, a, it was a revolutionary time, really, in New York City. It had become uh, really the economic hub of the world post-World War I. So I'm sure you're familiar with the old adage, uh, correlation does not necessarily equal causation. But uh, you actually show... Uh, what specifically the monetary policy and how that actually does correlate with certain things in the construction industry. Can you give one or two examples of, of why buildings get built higher uh, during these times of boom? Sure. That's, that's what I was working on um, in say 2002, 2003, 2004. And what I came up with was three Cantillon effects, uh, which were effects named after a very early Irish economist named Richard Cantillon, who I was also working on uh, other areas of his work. And basically, low interest rates, uh, they do a lot of things, but they do a lot of known things uh, that are somewhat mainstream economics. Uh, these are things that are well understood. And one of them is that low interest rates cause land prices to increase. Uh, if the interest rate is on your account is zero uh, and you've got pieces of land that you're holding, you're less likely to want to sell that land and put the money in the bank. And so if you suppress interest rates, one of the things you do is increase the price of land when you increase the price of land, you have to be able to um, produce more square footage on that land in order to make the project uh, viable. And so when the price of land goes up, the height of buildings goes up right along with it uh, in order to make construction projects profitable. So that's one thing where the interest rate directly affects the height of buildings. The second thing is that low interest rates encourage companies to become bigger, companies to merge together, companies to acquire other assets, 
uh, to become bigger. So you see a general movement from mom and pop operations to uh, conglomerates and, and corporations. And the transition from mom and pop operations to corporate conglomerates means that you're basically serving the same number of consumers or maybe more consumers, uh, but you the, the firm looks entirely different. Mom and pop firms don't have marketing departments. They don't have human resource departments. They don't have product development departments, all sorts of headquarter type operations mom and pops don't have, but these larger corporations do. And so these larger corporations need more office space and they need that office space in central business districts. And so that increases the demand for office space in areas where the, the price of land is very high. So that also stimulates um, artificially uh, entrepreneurs to build bigger structures. Uh, and the other category of Cantillon effects is what do these low interest rates and taller structures do to uh, construction technology? Well, when you're building a record setting skyscraper, you basically need all sorts of new construction technologies in order to make that building uh, viable. So you, um, you know, so you're pumping concrete, you're, you're moving labor and materials to higher uh, positions. Uh, right here in Little Auburn, Alabama, uh, we can see this business cycle in action. Uh, they're building, uh, they're only seven stories high, but that's still a local record. And so we have all sorts of cranes and pumping devices. Uh, and so the construction industry has to change across the board with advanced technologies and then building technologies or building systems. And here we're talking about uh, water and wastewater, uh, heating and air conditioning, elevators and escalators. All of that has to change as well. Uh, for example, on one recent record setting skyscraper, uh, they would have uh, needed a cable to move the elevator uh, using the old method that would weigh 24,000 pounds just to, for one elevator. And so a company came up with um, an advanced technology where the elevator cable only weighed about a little over 2,000 pounds. And so what's going on in the skyscraper um, is that all sorts of new technologies, all sorts of new production techniques uh, have to be brought to bear in order to set these new records. And so the skyscraper is a really good illustration, really, of what's going on throughout the economy, because those subtle changes are happening in businesses um, throughout the economy. Maybe not every business, uh, but most industries um, are going to be impacted by that. The thing that I really like about this book, and one of the reasons I recommend it, is that it's interesting because people kind of think, oh, economics, eh, dry. But just, you know, as you were just saying, when you start putting these things together and, and things that you see in the real world, I mean, we can we can drive down the street and see the buildings going up and, and the, uh, you know, the various construction techniques. We see all that. Then to be able to connect that to 
what is probably more abstract economic theory, I think it makes it a lot more understandable. So if you're sitting out there watching right now and thinking, ah, I don't want to read about economics, this book is not boring. It's, it is actually quite interesting because it really does bring uh, it brings things into the real world, so to speak. Um, one other one of the things I thought was interesting, you, you've got a cha chapter in the book and you talk about these Cantillon effects and, and you talk about it particularly in terms of the impact of, of printing money and how that money printing, you know, we've had a lot of money printing over the last decade, uh, how that impacts entrepreneurs uh, in particular uh, and the average person even. Can you kind of give a little brief overview of that? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your kind words regarding my book. Uh, one of the things that I absolutely demanded of myself was that I would um, write this in a non-technical way, uh, something that most everybody could read and understand, uh, but especially if you had any experience with uh, the construction industry, the real estate industry, uh, entrepreneurship in general. Uh, and also I tried to lay out my case and uh, uh, where I was coming from in a very open way um, and in a way that would help explain why not just that the Austrian business cycle theory is a great theory, uh, but also why it's not widely accepted and why it's uh, very often uh, chastised in various ways. Um, but it also deals with this fundamental issue of printing money, easy monetary policy, artificially low interest rates uh, by the Central Reserve. Um, most everybody knows that if you print a lot of money, if a government prints a lot of money, uh, that eventually the prices of the goods and services uh, that we consume are going to go up. Monetary inflation leads ultimately to price inflation. And a lot of people um, especially during this cycle, uh, have not seen much in the way of higher consumer prices. Uh, and most people know that the Fed has been printing trillions of dollars, but they've been printing it in a way that the money goes into financial assets and financial markets. So that what's happening so far is that the Fed's policy has increased stock prices, it's increased bond prices, it's increased land prices, it's increased real estate prices um, and other assets. Uh, and so, so far the monetary inflation has gone into asset price inflation rather than consumer uh, price inflation. But in addition to the inevitable price inflation, uh, you also get the business cycle as a result. Uh, the Fed undertakes an easy monetary policy that they think is going to stimulate uh, the economy and bring us out of recession. Uh, that's also a very misguided uh, type of monetary policy. Uh, the market economy can always recover on its own without the need for monetary stimulus or uh, uh, federal spending stimulus. Uh, those things just aren't necessary. But one the thing that they do do, and I repeat this uh, throughout the book, is, is that monetary stimulus in the form of lower interest rates 
and more bank credit uh, causes an overinvestment or really more accurately, it causes people to invest in the wrong things. It causes people to invest in advanced technologies. And, uh, you know, advanced technologies seems like a good idea, uh, but just because it's advanced doesn't mean it's the right technology. Uh, we might adopt it 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Uh, but if you do something uh, too, too soon, it, it's just as bad as investing too late. And uh, so what comes unraveled after the boom is you get this cluster of entrepreneurial errors, you know, and so it's not just that one restaurant is going out of business or one bank is going out of business or one house is being foreclosed on, but no, it's uh, people throughout industries uh, are all going uh, bankrupt or getting foreclosed uh, in large numbers at a particular point in time. And so that's those that cluster of entrepreneurial errors are actually what was started with investments in advanced technologies uh, a few years prior and uh, and that's basically what the Austrian business cycle theory shows and it's really uh, consistent I think in terms of once you start breaking aggregate numbers down into in industry numbers and, and you know into different categories uh, the types of things that the theory expects actually do come true. And, uh, you know, so the very often it's uh, the uh, cluster of entrepreneurial errors involves financial institutions, it involves technology institutions, and it involves real estate type uh, institutions or adventures um, rather than uh, like Coca-Cola going bankrupt or Johnson and Johnson going bankrupt. Uh, so it, it, when the bust comes, it doesn't um, totally wipe out, for example, consumer good producers. Um, it, it usually hits investment and interest rate sensitive uh, sectors of our economy. And that, then that can tell you, you know, where to go, where to uh, hang out and wait for the crisis to be over with. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, so obviously we're in, in a tightening cycle right now. We went for almost a decade with virtually 0% interest rates. The Fed has been nudging up rates. And, and of course, we also have the the factor that the federal government has run up so much debt that it's selling boatloads of treasuries, which, of course, is pushing treasury yields up. So we're in an environment of increasing interest rates right now. And uh, we're in a high debt environment. Everybody's leveraged up governments, individuals, corporations. So people that follow the uh, Shift Gold blog at, over at shiftgold.com slash news uh, know that I've been hammering on this subject for, for several months about the uh, it's, it's really difficult to sustain a in-debt economy in an environment of rising interest rates. So. I've been saying that I think we're near the end of the of the boom that we're heading towards a crash. And, and of course, you you mentioned in your book, and I think it's important to emphasize this. You know, we don't have a crystal ball. We're not making predictions, but you can make observations based on uh, the things that we see in economic theory. And I think that 
I think there's a lot of people in our camp, certainly that think we're getting close to the end of this cycle. But so I'm sure the question is burning on everybody's mind is, are there record setting skyscrapers in the work right now? Yes, there is. I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the point about prediction is that scientists like in physics and math, uh, they can make predictions. Uh, Halley's Comet came back and crossed through our solar system just when uh, Sir Edmund Halley predicted it. Um, And, you know, that can be done in factories. It can be done, you know, in the physical world of rocks and metals and gravity. Uh, But it can't be done in the world of human beings making choices, changing their mind, changing taste, uh, new product lines and all the rest. Um, So the Austrian business cycle theory gives us a general idea of what the business cycle is and what causes it uh, so that we know with pretty good certainty when a crisis could take place. Uh, But it doesn't give us any tools by itself as to when it's going to take place or how, what the magnitude of uh, the crisis is going to be. Uh, at this point in time, I think given the monetary expansion, 10 years of extremely low um, interest rates and untested monetary policy, uh, the conditions are probably overripe for an economic crisis. With respect to skyscrapers, the Jeddah Tower uh, has been started in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, it is designed to be a one kilometer tall and to break the record by about a dozen floors of livable, livable space. Uh, that construction project is actually on hold because of all of the corruption scandal that's going on uh, in Saudi Arabia. And of course, the, the uh, current situation with Saudi Arabia, Uh, but it doesn't really matter that the skyscraper has been suspended because again, it's not the skyscraper that causes the crisis. It's the conditions uh, of monetary policy that cause people to do these sorts of things and to have to invent new techniques and new technologies in order to get all that done. So the projection of uh, that construction project had it opening in 2020. And so the, the crisis should be in full bloom by then. I think we're seeing uh, the beginnings of it moving the target interest rate from near zero to 2% is already causing more volatility in stock markets. And stock markets are the markets that move the quickest. I mean, you can basically uh, open the stock market one day and things can look incredibly different by the end of that day. Uh, things are slower in, for example, the real estate market where uh, buying, selling, and setting prices on real estate assets can take years to really come into equilibrium. And so um, I, I think what we're seeing right now with the increased volatility in the stock market is the initial stage uh, of of the turn in the uh, 
in the stock in well in the stock market, but also in the economy and in the business cycle. Um, I th I think we're we're definitely headed in that direction. I think we're headed in the direction of higher costs, uh, higher commodity prices, uh, higher gold and silver prices. Uh, if you look at the market in a technical fashion. Um, I think the precious metals and commodities in general are well set for a stage of higher prices. And this just makes all of those investments uh, harder to become profitable um, as we see them being constructed, invented. Uh, and once they are all brought online, what we typically see is, well, there's overcapacity now that we bring on all these, whether it's computer chip making factories or houses or uh, luxury game day condominiums. Um, the capacity is more than anticipated. The costs are higher than anticipated. And so profits are going to be a lot less than entrepreneurs anticipated. Uh, and that starts to snowball and the economy goes down the drain with uh, more unemployment, um, uh, fewer profits, more losses. Um, business shutting down or curtailing operations. Um, all of those things I think are very ripe to, hap to happen when you look at just the, the numbers that are there. Uh, they're obviously out of equilibrium. And I think the, what we're seeing right now is the first movements towards equilibrium, which means uh, we move from the bubble to the bust. Yeah, I agree with you, obviously. And, uh, you know, Peter Schiff has been talking about, about that in terms of the stock market. And I think it's interesting just to note that, you know, we're at roughly 2% as far as the, the Fed interest rate goes. That's not very high. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting that we're already having this kind of volatility and, and really uh, it's still what I would consider abnormally low interest rates. So uh, I, I think you're right. I think we are in the, in the, the beginnings. But again, not making a prediction that's going to happen tomorrow or next week or or whatever. But but the the conditions are certainly ripe. And I I saw that overcapacity firsthand. I lived in uh, Saint Petersburg, Florida, in 06, 07. and you know they built eight hundred billion apartments and condominiums. And then uh, I went back and, and visited you know 2010, 2011, and there was 850 billion empty condominiums and apartments because they just uh, during that boom phase they just way overbuilt, and uh, and apparently they're they're building again down there. So uh, take that for what it's worth as well. So I've got one more question for you. This is the most important question of the show. Um, this is going to determine like whether I ever invite you back again. You know all of those important things. Um, <laughs> If you are typing a uh, something that you're going to publish online, do you double space after every sentence? Yes, I do. Uh, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm going to have to end this interview. I'm not going to even let I'm just kidding. Well, you know, if, if it's an email or if it's a comment um, online, um, I'm not double spacing. But if I'm writing something uh, that's an article length uh, piece, uh, I usually do that first in a word processing package using double spaces. And the reason I do, I, I've done that all along, but the reason I do it now is because I can't see, 
words as much. Well, that's fair. Um, <laughs> I'm beginning you know, to experience I, I, I that myself. I agree with you about the debt issue because, you know, I said costs are starting to rise. And one of the most important costs that's rising and going to rise further is the interest rate. And we know that's going to be true, not really directly by what the Fed plans to do, uh, but uh, in terms of interest rate setting policies, but they're also in a quantitative tightening phase where they're supposed to be selling off U.S. government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. They accumulated over $4 billion of those assets, and they're supposed to be selling those back into the marketplace. Uh, and you combine that with a rising federal deficit, it means that the demands uh, on the treasury market are going to be very difficult. And I can only see uh, rising interest rates as a result. And that is, of course, the big ticking time bomb of the debt bomb uh, that comes along with uh, the economic crisis. Yeah, it's interesting. I just saw an article uh, this morning and I, had, I haven't dug into it, but uh, the headline was that for the third straight month, the Chinese have uh, decreased the number of treasuries that they're holding. So typically when the Fed or when the U.S. Treasury is selling these bonds, the uh, the three biggest buyers are the Chinese, the Japanese and, and the Federal Reserve, or at least that's been the case for the last decade. And so now you've got the, the Fed. They're not buying. The Chinese aren't buying and the Japanese buying. And that raises the $64,000 question. Who's going to buy all of these bonds? And it goes right to your point that that simply means that you're going to have uh, lower bond prices and higher yields in order to uh, to try to get people to soak up that demand. And uh, I, I read that they, uh, the Treasury had planned on selling, I think, $1.4 trillion in Treasuries this year, and they expect that pace to continue into 2019 and 2020. Uh, so the the amount of, of debt that they're trying to sell onto the market right now is is amazing. And uh, like you said, whatever, no matter what the Fed does, that that supply and demand dynamic is probably going to push those interest rates up. Well, before we go, and I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us today. And uh, I just want to give you an opportunity before we go to let everybody know where they can find Mark Thornton so you can give uh, all of your links and social media and, and whatever, whatever things you want to share with us. Well, our webpage is Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S dot -E O-R-G. It's one of the largest and most traffic economic websites in the world, and it's written for everybody, not just academics. And we're open 24-7, 365. There's no registration. Uh, you can subscribe to various things, uh, but there's typically no fees unless you wanted to purchase a hardback copy of my book or something like that. Most of the books that we publish are available online for a free PDF download. So you get a chance to look at something that you might be interested in buying. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Mark Thornton. And of course, the Institute has uh, a Facebook page and is active on Twitter and all sorts, all sorts of social media. And we have daily articles uh, and a blog. And so there's a huge amount of material. We're always commenting um, on the economic and sometimes political uh, news, and we're providing the Austrian uh, vantage point for these issues. So 
that if you come to our website and look up issues on our website, you're going to find a completely different uh, take than if you look at the mainstream media. Uh, when I look at the mainstream media uh, today, I, I am baffled as to as to how they can continue to exist because there's very little explanatory content uh, to what they're reporting. And that's what our website does. And so I encourage everybody uh, to go take a look, uh, maybe subscribe to our, you know, daily subscriptions or, and things like that. Uh, we have years of um, audio and video lectures on virtually every topic. So it's an entire universe uh, unto itself. I will second that. The uh, Mises website is one of my daily stops, actually multiple times a day. And uh, I can't emphasize enough how much is available in terms of, uh, you know, if you want to study, if you want to learn Austrian economics, if you want to learn libertarian theory, uh, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of books that you can download and, and read. It's it's an amazing resource. And uh, uh, I love it and encourage people to visit that website. Well, Mark, I really appreciate it. Uh, I have to ask you, are, are you as much fun on Twitter as Tom Woods? Are you in, engaged in the uh, the perpetual Twitter wars? <laughs> no, I don't battle on Twitter. I try to provide information. Tom, I, I follow him on Twitter. He's great. Uh, I've been on his show many times. He used to be right in the office next to me uh, for several years, and that was uh, one of the pleasures of my life. Uh, and he does great work and uh, in helping libertarianism straighten itself out, uh, promoting Austrian economics, and challenging uh, the mainstream media on a daily basis. I'm glad he's on our side and not on their side. For sure. For sure. Well, Mark, I really appreciate again to you uh, taking the time. And uh, everybody check out Mark's book. And I appreciate it. And you have a great, uh, great day. Thank you, Michael. You've been watching It's You or Dime, an interview series presented by Shift Gold. For more information on investing in gold and silver, talk to a Shift Gold precious metal specialist today at 1-888-GOLD-160. That's 1-888-465-3160. Or visit us on the web at shiftgold.com. You can keep up with all of the latest precious metals news at shiftgold.com news. And tune in each week to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap Podcast. This is your host, Mike Meharry. I appreciate you watching, and I'll talk to you again next time.